This is our first of four weeks in this book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is uh, unique because it's a uh, minor prophet. Jonah is considered within the group of the minor prophets. But every other minor prophet is an account of the actual prophecy that is given through these prophets. But Jonah is different because it is not the account of the revelation itself, but it is a story about a prophet. So that puts Jonah in a very unique place. As we read this book, we should keep in mind that Jonah is meant to be read with a, uh, a lesson that is meant to be conveyed. So as we're reading uh, this book in these four weeks, we should be asking ourselves, what is the lesson of Jonah? What are to, we to learn as we look at this story? The lesson that uh, is a recurring theme that we can see in each chapter of this great book is that salvation belongs to God. Oh, how necessary a lesson this is for us to learn that salvation belongs to God. And here in our first chapter, we see this dominant theme is the fear of the Lord. Now, this is a concept that we can be so confused by today, but it's one that is so necessary for us to understand. What we would find is that if we looked through the history of God's people, that it is when they fail to fear the Lord that they tend to wander. We would see this in uh, the history of Israel, and as we look through the history of the church, this is what we would find. When people fail to fear the Lord, that is when we wander from him. What we see here in this first chapter is that fear of the Lord is not merely intellectual, but it is it involves the whole person revering God and submitting under his lordship. Fear of the Lord is not merely intellectual, but involves the whole person revering God and submitting under his lordship. Our uh, text is broken up into uh, really two parts. We see first the call of Jonah and then his flight from God. And then we'll see from verses uh, 4 to 16, we see uh, this theme of the fear of the Lord really develop. And so uh, we read now the, or rather, we'll look at the first three verses and realize that they set the stage for what's to come. So we look at our text. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So, He's called to arise, to call out against the evil of Nineveh. And Jonah does arise, but he does not go to Nineveh. He flees away towards Tarshish. Tarshish is in the complete opposite direction. He's attempting to flee the presence of the Lord. So right off the bat, we would ask ourselves this question, why is Jonah fleeing? Now, Based on just this context, we might look and see, okay, why would Jonah flee Nineveh? Their evil has come up before the Lord. Surely Nineveh is an evil people. Jonah must be afraid of what the Ninevites would do if he calls out against their sin. Surely this is why Jonah's fleeing. 
Now, if we would think that, we would be wrong. Because Jonah tells us why he flees. He tells us not here, but in chapter 4. He tells us, speaking to God, he says that he fleed because I knew you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah flees not because he's afraid of of Nineveh, but because he's afraid that Nineveh will repent and that God will be gracious. Now, this might be hard for us to understand because we don't have the context. But uh, to help us a little bit, we should consider that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel a matter of decades before uh, Assyria would conquer Israel. And Assyria, rather Nineveh, is the stronghold of Assyria. So these are the very same people that would come and conquer within a matter of decades. So this is why Jonah flees. Jonah does not want God to relent from his anger against Nineveh. So we see this contrast here. We see this contrast between Jonah's heart and God's heart. We see that God hates the evil of the Ninevites. He hates their evil because he loves them. But Jonah, Jonah hates the Ninevites and he does not want to see them repent. As we observe Jonah's hatred, there is obvious implications that we can draw from this. We know from not only this passage, but from all of scripture, that God has a heart for the nations. That God has a plan for every people, tribe, nation, and tongue. And so, brothers and sisters, we know there is never a place for racism in the people of God. But that is not all. We could go even further because not only are we called not to be a people that don't hate, but we are called to even love those who would hate us, pray for those who would persecute us. So right now, we already see this uh, juxtaposition between the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. But I would draw this uh, more general implication as well that Jonah's actions reveal a heart that is not aligned with God's heart, that Jonah has desires that supersede his desire for God, that he does not see God's plan as good. So it might be easy for us to distance ourselves from Jonah because we don't understand his hatred for Nineveh. But brothers and sisters, do we love the way that we ought to love? Do we have desires that would pull us from God, so that we would find ourselves fleeing from his presence or simply not willing to submit to his word. Now, Jonah's flight from God, his fleeing from God's presence sets the stage for this next section, verses 4 to 16. So, There are several things that we should keep in mind again as we enter this uh, section. Remember that this story is, uh, it's a a historical narrative that is meant to convey a lesson. 
The inspired author of scripture draws the reader's attention to certain features for this very point, that we would see the lesson in this chapter of Jonah. And we see this repetition of this concept of fear. We see uh, fear in the beginning, we see fear in the middle, and we see fear at the end. And what is held up before us is this contrast between the fear of the mariners and the fear of Jonah. And the question that it beckons us to ask as we read, as we consider this section, is who fears the Lord? Who fears the Lord? Jonah or the sailors? So now, let's look at this progression of fear in this passage together. We see first in verse 5, the mariners are afraid. Each cried out to his God, And then if we skip down and uh, we read as the captain uh, calls out to Jonah, he says, arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so these mariners are afraid of this situation. And they cry out to their gods, but they don't have certainty of what their gods will do. And now we, we continue to see this development of fear in this text. So the men are, are frantic. They are trying to figure out what is the cause of this storm. And so they cast lots. And the lot falls on Jonah. So they interrogate Jonah. They ask him, who are you? And Jonah says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then watch the sailor's response in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we ask ourselves, who fears the Lord? Finally, as this... uh, section, um, well actually even before this section comes to an end, we see one more instance of uh, the sailors' uh, fear. So they're trying to figure out what do we do with Jonah? Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, for I know that it is because of me that the wrath of God has come upon us. And the men do not throw Jonah into the sea right away. And the reason that they do not throw him into the sea, they contend against the storm. It's given in verse 14. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're in reverence, they're in fear of the Lord and they realize that the Lord has done as he pleased. And so they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and then we're given this last uh, interpretive statement in verse 16. This is often in biblical narrative. After the resolution, we look to see, is there a lens that the author gives us with which we can interpret what we've just seen? 
It says in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So I ask once again, who feared the Lord? Once again, to look back, we see the fear of the sailors, their starting point. They're generally afraid. They're calling out to their gods, but they're theologically uncertain. And then we see the turning point. What is the turning point? It is when they encounter the living God. They see that God has the power over this storm. They come to an awareness of his power and might. And then look at this ending point. They started out in this circumstantial fear. They're afraid of the circumstances of this storm. And yet, at the end, after the storm is calm, it says that they feared the Lord. You can imagine the the reverence and the awe as they come to realize that they are standing in the presence of the living, true God. So now we contrast that with Jonah's fear. Where do we see Jonah's fear in this passage? We see it really just in one place in verse 9. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And that's it. So my first point that I want to draw out of this is we consider what does it mean to fear the Lord? It comes in uh, verses 9 and 10. We see this is the central point of this passage. It is where the uh, fear of the sailors and the fear of Jonah come and they meet. In verses 9 and 10, we just read verse 9. And then in verse 10, we see the uh, sailors' response of exceeding fear. How could Jonah do this? That was their response. And so the message here is clear. Fear of the Lord is more than words. Fear of the Lord is more than words. Brothers and sisters, we must fear God with our whole being, not just our intellect. To illustrate, imagine uh, you are going to a store. It could be any store. Let's say it's a grocery store. You get to the parking lot and you see that it's very empty. That's strange. You see that there's uh, very few shopping carts. That's strange. People aren't really coming in and out of the store. This is a puzzling scene. You walk in and then you find why there are few people. There's no food at this grocery store. So puzzled, you say to the manager, I thought this was a grocery store. Where is all the food? Now imagine if the manager responds, this is a grocery store. It says so on the sign. How absurd. It lacks the substance. And so in the same way, Jonah, he says that he fears the Lord, but he lacks the substance of what it means to fear the Lord. If our ideas about God do not extend past our minds, then they are just ideas. That is not what we are called to in the word. This is true not only uh, about the fear of the Lord, but uh, consider with me uh, Paul's letters. Paul always begins his letters with the truths of who God is 
with theological statements of fact about God and then ends with exhortation, with exhorting people to live in light of the truth of who God is. Now, there's a particular danger for us today that we would misunderstand what it means to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is not a fear of a tyrant. It's not fear of an abusive father, but it is fear of a loving Lord who knows what is best for us. And yet we also have uh, the other side where we can fail to understand what it means because we lack reverence. We lack the idea, the cultural understanding of what it means to be reverent. And whatever may be true of the culture outside, as the body of Christ, we must understand what reverence is. We must understand what it means to fear the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, we know it is not merely intellectual. Let us ask ourselves, what does it mean then to fear the Lord? We'll see two ways in this passage. First is recognize who he is. Second is submit under his lordship. That is what it means to fear the Lord. Recognize who he is and submit under his lordship. So, as we consider the turning point for the sailors, it's when they come to experience God, to see him as he is, to see that he has the power over the sea and the dry land. Their response to Jonah demonstrates reverence. They say, Jonah, how could you flee from a holy God? How could you? They have reverence for God. That is what recognizing who he is leads us to. It leads us to reverence. Seeing God demands this. He is holy. He is mighty. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The one who is and who was and who is to come. We could not describe the depth and expanse of his attributes. And so the closest that we get is in his name. He is the great I am. He is. That is the closest we get to describing him. So if we understand the magnitude of God, then we come to understand that reverence is required. Imagine that you... We're going to meet somebody that you highly esteem. Imagine a great sports hero or a celebrity. Would you not be nervous? I imagine this is how uh, many people would have felt if they had the opportunity to meet the queen. You would feel uh, some sort of nerves. Or if we look at it from another angle, imagine that you're in a small position in a big company and you have an appointment with the CEO. Would you not be even the slightest bit nervous? Picture that and now multiply it by an infinite amount. And that is what it would be to stand in the presence of our God. So, brothers and sisters, do we have a high view of God? Do we see him as holy? Do we see him as high and lifted up and glorious? In Christ 
we can approach this glorious God with confidence. And I, I, the reason that I really am pressing on this point is because I think for us, there, there are two extremes. There is one extreme of being so f- afraid of God that we don't go to him. But I think sometimes we can be so cavalier with God. We can be irreverent even in our approach. But brothers and sisters, confidence in Christ does not mean irreverence. Consider Christ's words as he uh, gives the, uh, this, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector coming to pray to God. And the Pharisee says, thank God I am not like this tax collector. But the tax collector cannot even look up and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of those went away justified. That is what Christ said. He says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That is a word of encouragement, brothers and sisters, but it is an encouragement for us to be found in Christ. So our reverence doesn't stop at a high view of God, but it drives us to submission under his lordship. Once again, we come back to this story of Jonah. We see uh, this extreme tension point of the text is found when the sailors are wondering, what do we do with Jonah? Do we uh, throw him into the ocean? At first, they fight it. They fight the storm. They, uh, they, they try to contend against it until they realize that they cannot contend against it, that this is the will of the Lord, that the Lord has done as he pleased. And so what do they do? They submit to the Lord. Now, I want to offer some uh, caveats here, right? If we are to uh, rightly interpret this, it doesn't mean that next time we're on a boat and a storm comes that we should throw ourselves overboard because we think that we're sinful and that God is bringing judgment by bringing a storm. That is not the point of this text. So now with that caveat, we see the submission to the Lord, to his provision, to, to the way in which he has made for deliverance. That is what we see in this text. And this is what we see throughout scripture, that fear of the Lord is reverence and submission. That's the way that it's spoken of in the Psalms. If, if we read in the Psalms and we read in the Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge if we are to uh, know him, to, to, to live the life through which he has called us to live, brothers and sisters, we must revere our Lord and submit to him. But here's the problem. If we walk away from this text today and we look at Jonah and we say bad example, that is, that is a bad example of fearing the Lord and, and sailors, that is a good example of fearing the Lord. And we walk away and we think, okay, I'm just going to do this. We're going to miss the mark. We do not perfectly revere God and we do not perfectly submit to him. 
So like the sailors, we must trust in the way that God has made for us to submit to him. The fullness of scripture points to Christ. And so our submission is under the lordship of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our greatest issue in life, our greatest problem is that we are blind to God's glory and we need him to lift the veil so that we can behold his glory. And so this is what the cross drives us to. Right? When we see the holiness of God, that he is both just and the justifier. We see that he is high and lifted up and we understand that we have no right to come to him and yet he loves us and makes a way in the cross. So ultimately, fear of the Lord does not drive us away from God. This is the issue of Jonah, right? We can think, oh, Jonah, this is a picture of somebody afraid of the Lord. He's running away. That's what we do when we're afraid, right? But fear of the Lord beckons us to draw near to him. Paul speaks of the promises of God, that he would dwell with us, that we would be his sons and daughters. And this is what he says to the Corinthian church. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not merely intellectual. The Christian life is a story of constantly coming to understand his holiness and our sinfulness, and yet we have a Savior who died that we could come confidently before him. So we are sanctified as we live with Christ, transforming our hearts and letting us enter into his presence, making us whole and wholly able to come to him. We tend to see ourselves uh, in the place of the sailors. We tend to think that uh, we are able to revere and submit to the Lord. But brothers and sisters, we are in the place of Jonah. Oh, how we run from the Lord, how we run from the will of God and we run from his word. And like Jonah... Jonah is thrown overboard. This is a picture of death. And what we'll see next week is that there's also a picture of resurrection. We too must die. We must die to ourselves and live in Christ and be found in him. This is what it means to fear the Lord. So let us not Keep it squarely and only in our minds, but let it sink down to our hearts that we might live in light of all that God has given us, that we would submit under his lordship and be transformed 
to the image of his son, transformed and glorious. As we close, once again, we see this contrast between Jonah's disobedience and the obedience of the sailors, and we are reminded and exhorted that it is not enough for us to know. Jonah knows about God, but he lacks understanding of what it means to fear the Lord, and the sailors know comparatively little about God. But when they see him, they revere him. So this Christian life is not meant to be lived out merely in theory. Our thoughts towards God, our beholding of God must lead to a whole life change which is brought about by the Spirit at work in us. So let's pray that God would write this truth on our heart that his spirit would be at work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We know that we can draw near to you by the blood of the Lamb, Lord, that we can draw near to you and live in confidence, Lord, and yet we see your glorious Word, Lord, we see your glory, the glories of your attributes, Lord, and we pray, God, that we would be a people transformed into a more clear image of you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.